0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by the Museum of Food and Drink, sparking curiosity about food with exhibits you can eat. For more information, visit mofad.org.
2: Become a member during our 2017 summer drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org donate to become a member now. Hello, hello. You are listening to Food Without Borders on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sari Kamen. I have two guests on the show with me today, which is very nice. Uh, First, I have Deepti Sharma. She is the founder of Food to Eat, a service where companies can order meals from the best local restaurants, food trucks and caterers, many of which are immigrant-owned businesses. She's a Forbes 30 under 30 alumni, and she serves on the board for the Business Center for New Americans, a nonprofit that encourages immigrant entrepreneurship by providing microloans and financial education. I also have Karina Swad. She is the co founder of Semsum, a modern Lebanese eatery that she runs with her sister Christine, inspired by the flavors of her native Beirut. Hello, ladies. Hi. Hey. Deep Tea, Corinne. so nice to have you both here. Nice to be here. Um, so you run Food to Eat, Deep Tea, and Samsum is one of your vendors. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So that's why you're both here in the room together. Yes. yes. <laughs> out there. So Deep Tea, why don't we start with you and why don't you explain what Food to Eat is?
3: Yeah. So Food to Eat is a corporate catering concierge service where we partner with local food vendors, a lot of which are immigrant women and minority-owned businesses. Um, We do work with um, every vendor that we like, you know, that we love their food of, but um, we like concentrating on immigrant women and minorities owned businesses. um, One, because it's who I am. um, And, you know, I'm a woman, I'm a woman of color um, and first generation of, you know, my parents moved here back in the 70s. So I love representing who I am. Um, And so what we do is we essentially become their sales and marketing and provide their catering services to corporates, getting corporates to eat more locally um, and being more conscious of what food they're uh, serving in their offices when it comes to client meetings or team lunches. Um, And the idea is for corporations, um, we essentially become their one-stop shop for food and beverage in all capacities. Um, And we like to do that by empowering the amazing stories of New York City food vendors um, that are surrounding them, but a lot of times they don't get a chance to try or test out because they're too afraid to. Um, So we, you know, we tell them we do all the vetting for you. We make sure that these vendors are going to be on point and um, going to be able to succeed in whichever capacity they need them to. Um, Yeah. So that's what we do.
2: So you're almost like a like a third party. We, like, are,
3: we are a third party, but we like to see ourselves as partners to the restaurants. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of times, restaurants don't come from backgrounds of MBAs or business degrees, and um, you know, they're mom and pops. And so what they do best is making their amazing food. And so we want to come in and help them um, do the other side. Um, Samsung uh, is is not one of those that doesn't come from like a business background, but is a, a vendor that we love especially because of their story and their background and how they've decided to bring uh, Lebanese food to America Um, and again it's also for us it's not just um, whether they're capable of doing it on their own or not but we want to empower the stories that they come with Um, you know food is more fun and interesting when there's a story behind it and that's what we want to do is bring out the stories not just um, you know Throw food on a table. We want to say, where does it come from? Where do these ingredients come from? Where do the recipes come from? And that's what we find most interesting.
2: Yeah. So, how do you do that? How How do you not only present the food, but you also you create a context for the story?
3: So, for an example, when we first um, onboarded Samsung, what we did is we had them come into our office. Um, we do a tasting. So, first, we want to make sure that we love their food. Um, we sit down with the owner. We get we do an interview with them, and the interview isn't like a formal interview where we sit down and ask them like ten. 10 questions um, that are the same every time. It's just us trying to get an understanding and feel for who they are. Um, why did they start their business? I think that's more important than to me what they do. Um, I always say to every entrepreneur I talk to, what is the why of your business? And that's what makes me want to work with them even more. Um, so part of our process is to get to know them, get to understand their food, why they started their business. And as we talk to, you know, as because we're essentially a concierge service, we talk to our Um, our companies. And as we're going through the process of understanding what it is that they want in their office, what kind of uh, food they're trying to bring in, um, we talk to them about these stories. And we talk to them about, for example, Samsung, or we talk about our other vendors that have these interesting stories and backgrounds. And we tell them, hey, you know, we have another vendor, Mama Jairo, who is a mother-daughter business. And um, their recipes came from Greece, and they came from their grandmother. And you see a spark in people's eyes. They're like, Oh, that's really cool. Cause I'm, you know, now not just supporting this Greek vendor that's down the mm-hmm. street, but I'm also supporting these two women that are running this business and, um, who doesn't want to see them grow and flourish. Right. Mm-hmm. And it becomes more interesting when it's not just, um, a big conglomerate like Chipotle. Yeah. Not to call them out or on, on anything. <laughs> um, but just, I'm sure
2: they're used to it at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so how do you find the businesses that you work with?
3: Um, uh, so when I, when I first started the business, it was a lot of door-to-door. I'm just reaching out to businesses that um, at places that I like eating. Um, and now we're at a point where we've done well by our, our uh, vendors and we get them from references or even our clients. You know, we tell and encourage our clients to tell us what food they want to see um, and if there are vendors that they get to enjoy on the weekend. Because um, the idea is, you know, I think a lot of times when you're working um, at these larger corporations, you end up um, enjoying food within only a two-block radius of where you work, mm-hmm. and that's on the weekends sure. you get to enjoy everything that's outside of your comfort zone. Um, and so, what we say to them is that we want to bring that weekend smorgasbord experience that you go to Williamsburg for, or, you know, Queens to um, to your office. So wherever you're eating on the weekends, let us know, and we're going to bring that experience in. And oftentimes, you know, their clients will say, you know, I don't even get to leave New York. Let us bring that local experience of New York City to you. And yeah. so a lot of times it's where are we eating, where are our clients eating, what, can, you know, what kind of stories can we um, find from there and bring them to other clients?
2: Yeah. Um, so how does it actually work?
3: So um, we we have an online platform where clients can place their own orders, um, but our concierge is the more uh, is the bigger part of our business. So we get to know account manager, um, we get to know office managers and HR managers. Um, their jobs are to run anything and everything in an office. Um, they, you know, we sit down, get to know their, uh, pro- we create a taste profile is what we like to call it. Essentially, dietary restrictions, you know, what cuisines are their um, their team members more prone to liking and eating in the office. Um, based off of the questionnaire that we do, we put together, um, you know, a list of vendors that we know that they'll like uh, based off of whatever they're trying to uh, whether it's a team lunch or, you know, guests, uh, clients that they're servicing um, or entertaining. And based off of that, we, you know, present certain proposals that we think that would be a best fit for them. Um, you know, usually we put like a two-liner of the stories of the vendors.
2: So you actually recommend food to the businesses? Yes. Oh, interesting.
3: That's so our, nice. Yeah. So our clients are ad agencies, law firms. A okay. lot of them are like. Um, it's
2: like a dating service, but for food. kind of? Almost. It's yeah. almost
3: like that. Yeah. We we get to know both sides. We we you know we we and put they're like I think
2: you would match with this food. Actually, that's like, yeah, yeah. I've yeah, never thought of it right, that swipe way. Swipe but yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I've yeah. actually tried like concierge dating, so that's why it sounds so much like that.
3: How's that been? Not <laughs> not very successful. Well, I can
2: say... I think I'd do better if it, if someone was presenting me food i get more
4: excited more
2: often yeah Yeah. food is just i'd be like lebanese food swipe right yes (laughs) (laughs) that would be great
3: well maybe that's our next step you know creating an app where you can swipe left or right on what food you like but
2: you heard it here first (laughs) you got that one for free
3: yeah um but yeah i mean the most important thing for us is again our vendors. Um, when I first started the business, uh, interestingly enough, we started off as a B2C business, and we were an online ordering platform for food trucks. And the reason I started that business was I was waiting online at a food truck, and I waited for 20 minutes, and I thought, why am I waiting for so long? Um, there should be a better way for me to access this food truck. Instead of just starting the company as the seamless for food trucks, as people like to explain it, um, I decided to talk to the vendors. And one of the biggest things that I noticed was that a lot of the vendors didn't see themselves as small businesses. They just saw themselves as, this is a job I do. I show Mm -hmm. up. I pay the bills. And food trucks, especially in New York City, are seasonal. Um, So a lot of times the problem became, you know, they would have to pick up second jobs and, um, you know, stop their food truck. And so what we wanted to do was a way for them to sustain their business um, by being able to keep it all year round. Um, and the way mm-hmm. we did that is being able to provide them a predictable order. So people were able to pre-order the day before for the next day so they can kind of forecast what's going to happen tomorrow, how, what do I need to prepare for my regular lunch crowd that stands in line, but also these orders that people are coming to pre-order and pick up. And so the I
2: food can- trucks that you work with like still operate as, as a food truck where people stand in line, but then they also have this other component now of their business that...
3: Yeah, I mean, so like I said, when we first started, it was this online ordering platform for food trucks. Um, Think of it as a seamless for food trucks. Mm -hmm. Um, But the whole idea was how do we empower these food trucks to grow their businesses? Um, And we pivoted for a lot of reasons, which I don't want to get into, but the idea is the mission for us and for me personally has always been how to empower local food vendors to think of themselves as small business owners, um, to think of the, you know, ways to, you know, talk about themselves and in cart, you know, they didn't even name their food trucks. They all were halal cart or halal truck. Yeah. Yet every <laughs> single one of them had a different kind of way of cooking, had a different kind of falafel and they weren't marketing themselves. Mm-hmm. So that's where we took it into our hands. Okay, well, we're going to do your sales and marketing and catering is a bigger business. Catering is more predictable. Um, it's easier. It's a lot of, you know, their average ticket was uh, $20 when we were doing the consumer business, just takeout orders. And when we started focusing on catering, it became, you know, $600. Mm-hmm. So you can see why that was a natural transition for us. We always wanted to add more value for them. Um, and
4: it, being able to outsource their catering to us is great
3: for them.
2: Yeah.
4: It's a different type of skill set, also, I think one thing that's very important to know as restaurateurs, we're really good in operations, we're really good at making good food, but the outreach the sales is not something that all of us master that well. So having someone that can sure. be a partner and go and knock on doors and explain even better than us sometimes what you actually do is invaluable and this is why I think what Dipti is doing is working as well with food truck as it is with like more established restaurants because it's a totally different set of skills
2: yeah. How did it affect your business, Karine?
4: So it it affected it in many ways. First of all, definitely it was uh, interesting on a sales level because we were able to get to more clients. But also, I think when someone is trying to describe your business, it makes you really aware about some things about it that you want to tweak, refine, or even highlight. And uh, we did a talk with Deepti two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and... The questions she asked, the way she presented the the information that she has from her client, made us re-question a lot of things. And this is something that we really enjoy with the partners. And this is why I think Deepti, when when she mentioned that it's. Uh, not only you know um, a concierge service in the sense that she's reselling the product but it's really a partnership i think this is what she means because they really have this interface with the client they really have this exposure to so many uh, so many requests and needs etc that it really affects the way we uh, we present ourselves
2: yeah yeah um i mean while we're here why don't why don't you tell (laughs) us a little bit about your business
4: So our business, Simpsons, started in 2008. Um, My sister was in a cab in Washington, DC, and she was telling him that she was from Lebanon, and the guy had no clue where that was. Uh, And at the time, she was the, and she still is the franchisee of Dunkin' Donuts in uh, in Lebanon. And all she knew was food. So she thought to herself in that cab that she wanted to start something to talk about the food, the heritage, and the culture that we have. Uh, She went back to Lebanon, and together we uh, toured villages. So we went to each village. uh, We asked guests to send us recipe, and we did something we called the recipe hunt. Uh, to gather more than 1,500 recipes from our guests. And the initial thought behind that was that our generation doesn't cook as much, and all the recipes that are not either in a cookbook or in a restaurant are going to disappear.
2: So wait, I, <laughs> So I think it's kind of interesting that you just said your sister essentially brought Dunkin' Donuts yep. to Lebanon. <laughs> it was
4: the first American franchise to open. But then she's <laughs>
2: also working to like cultivate... Like a like an archive of traditional Lebanese recipes because you both like lament the fact that your generation is no longer cooking traditional exactly, food. Exactly. Exactly. Is there is there a conflict of interest there? Like, On is there the attention? contrary, okay. I
4: think the the beauty of it is to take the process and the skills you develop through a franchise. And try to uh, instill it uh, oh, okay. in a restaurant. So just think about it. If you have traditional recipes, if you go and you look for this emotional uh, recipe and add to it all the systems and processes that you can learn from a big franchise, you have a winning model. Because you're able to be true to your roots, but also do it in an efficient way. And this is what we tried to do. And this
2: is how That's we grew. Definitely actually. one way to
4: look at it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Yeah. I mean hopefully Dunkin Donuts isn't putting any like mom and pop restaurants out of business at the no. same time <laughs> in Lebanon.
4: No, actually in Lebanon um
2: like, it, do people like Dunkin Donuts in Lebanon? It's
4: very different. The brand positioning there is very different. First of all, you have to imagine that she started 20 years ago. She was 23 years old at the time. Crazy. Um That is really crazy. Yeah, she she I don't even know how they gave her the franchise. I think they just thought that Lebanon was irrelevant
2: at the time. Might <laughs> like, as okay, well okay, give it a shot. She's <laughs> <laughs> literally the only one who applied for and it. Now- <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, I'm sure she was. She now has like 45 stores. She oh has—it's the biggest concentration oh of Duncans per capita in the world. <laughs> Are they all in Lebanon? They're all in Lebanon. So yeah, and and the way people look at it, especially my generation, we didn't have a hangout place. So we would like hang out in houses. We would go to our grandmother's or our mom. So Duncan was the first place for us to hang out outside of home oh. to go to study to. And the American dream is very much present still in the Middle East, uh, despite what you might be hearing in the news, we have a lot of love and respect for that, uh, for those ideals. So on the contrary, for us, it was a home away from home. And and in, in the sense, is still a home away from home for immigrants or for people like me who are uh, who are outside their home country. So there are a lot of things so in common. So is
2: to the United States kind of what Duncan is to Lebanon? <laughs> to put they, it in like S.A.T. <laughs> speak? Um, <Yeah. laughs>
4: we, well, that's simplifying it a bit. But I'm sure. <laughs> but yes, in a way, we're trying to be, again, a home away from home, uh-huh. either in, in Lebanon for young people who can find a hangout place or here for people who are looking for this uh, warmth and coziness that you, that you are definitely missing in big cities. That's interesting. The same thing actually happened
3: in India as well mm-hmm. where it was this safe place where parents could trust their kids going to.
2: With Dunkin' Donuts uh, yeah. the same?
3: Yeah, well it wasn't Dunkin' Donuts it was other yeah. franchises uh-huh. like mm-hmm. you know foreign franchises and also kids loved it because there was air conditioning <laughs> and because the middle class kids growing up in India couldn't afford air conditioning like, yeah. so it was a better I would literally
2: rather be in Dunkin' Donuts today than my apartment because of the weather <laughs> upside, so I get that.
4: At least the air conditioning is working there right? Yeah
2: <laughs> anywhere with AC is fine with me. Um, so did you grow up in Beirut?
4: I did. So I lived in Beirut until I was uh, about 18. Then I moved to France, lived there for 10 years, and I was a strategy consultant at the time, working in finance and and, uh, strategic planning. And I transferred, I was at the Boston Consulting Group, and I transferred with, with the BCG to New York. And one day my uh, sister was visiting, and it's a, a story that might sound very similar to that of other, other people that you had on the show, like Manal, that, uh, uh, that's a very good friend. Um, we were looking for a good hummus, and it was impossible <laughs> for us to find a very good hummus. Uh, and What year was this? Uh, so that was before Manal. <laughs> I, no,
2: no, 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 I'm, not, I'm not questioning. I'm just curious because hummus in- feels so pervasive now. I'm just well, wondering. It is
4: everywhere. But yeah. hummus is everywhere. Good hummus is not. But good hummus is not. Okay. A, a real hummus and We've our been hummus. You're eating it all wrong. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you have
4: honestly. So uh, good hummus or our hummus takes twelve hours to make because this is a product where you cannot have shortcuts. You have to boil it right, shell it right, freeze it, or, or chill it to the right temperature. Uh, and doing it right really has a very important impact on the end product. So this is how it all started for us. We were walking and we were trying to find this food done well and done the right way. And it was impossible for us to find it. So you went on a hummus crawl. We did. We actually tried 70 to 72 restaurants in a week. Wow. <laughs> oh my God. I'd be <laughs> We were hummused out by the end of it. Yeah. <laughs> that was painful, yes. Now, the end of it was really, really painful. The last two days, we were like, ah. Oh. Um, but, Yeah but we couldn't find what we were looking for. We didn't were... find it? Nope. Wow. no. So she had to create it. Exactly. So <laughs> that's how it started. A very painful seven
2: days of eating hummus. <laughs> oh, man. I don't feel that bad for you. That doesn't sound like yeah. such a horrible experience. You built a business out of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that was the inspiration. Yep. Um, so, Samsum was already existed at this point in Lebanon. So, SimSum
4: started in two thousand and eight in Lebanon, uh, and we started uh, expanding in the Middle East. So, we were in Saudi, uh, Kuwait, uh, Arma- uh, sorry, Saudi, Kuwait, Oman, Lebanon, and we are opening now in Dubai. Uh, and in two thousand and fifteen, we opened our first store here in the U.S.
2: And what's what was it like trend I mean what's the difference between how it exists in in the Middle East versus how it exists mm. in America?
4: So in the Middle East, it's a, it's a casual restaurant. So basically, you have full table service. Uh, it's bigger stores. Uh, you have a lot of like daily dishes, etc. that take a lot of time. Here, we uh, transform the format into a fast casual. So it's mostly counter service. Uh, uh, the portions are, are different, but the spices, the recipes are still the same. And I think that's, for me, and I was telling Dipti that last time, uh, for me, that's the biggest um, reward. When you have your grandmother's recipe. Uh, being sold in a street in New York, there's something invaluable about that. And there's something that makes you go back to work every day and be like, okay, I want to give it another shot and I want to try even harder and, and, and stronger. Is
2: your, is your actual grandmother's recipe part yes. of the menu?
4: So it's actually our bestseller, yeah. which <laughs> created a family feud because there's my mom's recipe, my grandmother's recipe, and my, and my recipe. And literally, I get texts every day being "Who won today? Who?" <laughs> <In the family. laughs> so we are a slightly competitive family. <laughs> and the fact that the the three main recipes are definitely uh, things that we eat at home as uh, what
2: are those recipes?
4: So the first, well, first of all, the hummus is my grandmother's recipe. It's the same, and that was
2: wasn't that also Manal's grandmother's hummus? Yes, that yes. She yes. For and Adolfi. we compared yeah. pictures and
4: <laughs> and compared process. are gonna have like a, like a hummus off, yeah, a blind test. I will judge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're Lebanese. I'm going to have to bribe you some.
2: <laughs> <laughs> With hummus done. <laughs>
4: uh, so, yeah, the hummus, the taouk chicken, which is our best seller. It's sweet paprika, tomato sauce, and a bit of red wine vine- vinegar. And the shawarma, the oven-baked shawarma, that's my mom's recipe.
2: Did you have to adapt any of the recipes for more... American flavors, or are they just as as traditional as they were in the Middle East?
4: We tried not to. Mm -hmm. So what we did was select the dishes that people would like. So I know that some dishes, we did a lot of focus group, and again, my my former colleagues at the BCG tried everything. They were real sports. Uh, A lot of things we ended up removing from the menu, but the things that are on the menu are the exact same recipe that we have around the world, and that's important for us, because we consider that, at least for Lebanese food, there's no real reference. So our role is to also educate people to try something different it's not because it's a bit more tangy or a bit more uh you know spicy or or herbal than than something you're used to that you you're not going to like it so our role is to really educate on what the flavor should be and that's that's really important the Mm.
3: authenticity of the food right a lot of these corporates that we work with you know they work with large food service conglomerates and they'll have their version of greek or mediterranean Mm. or mexican and and mm. yeah exactly it's cheddar cheese on everything. Mm. Although when you ask when you ask um a lot of, you know, like Mexican friends, they don't actually eat cheddar cheese. They mm. you know have a different kind of cheese and a different kind of consistency. And so that's what we try to do as well is the educational process and a lot of times, you know, if clients are willing, we have the vendors come in and do a little educational piece and talk about their food. Um it's that same awareness. I'm a, you know, I I'm, I'm Indian. Um, I grew up uh, in New York and I grew up taking my mother's home cooking to uh, my elementary school. And I remember kids just making fun of me and mm-hmm. saying, Oh, that smells. It's gross. It's disgusting. Mm-hmm. And Indian people smell. And, you know, it was tough dealing with that, but instead of getting upset and sad, I was like, Hey, do you want to try this? Cause it's actually really good. Mm-hmm. And I would talk through what my mom like put in it and I was like, Oh, it's potatoes. And she put some spices and turmeric and all this. And, Kids will get excited because you know, you know, growing up, kids are kids are afraid of what they don't know, um, and I, I think, think that, adults also. And exactly, that's exactly I was about to say. <laughs> I think that carries through throughout people's.
2: That's literally the. Like, that was the inspiration for creating this show. Yeah, and, and yeah. so that
3: educational process, and I think that goes for everything we're going through today, is education around all the issues that we have, um, whether it's with gender or with mm. the, with immigration. It's, mm-hmm. let us talk to each other about what, mm-hmm. we, what we're what we doing, how we're doing it. And so for me, it's so important to empower these awesome food vendors. And the fact that it's so important for them to do that, and mm-hmm. that they've already been doing that, it makes our job even easier because... Samsung has built their brand around that authenticity and what we're doing is only taking that and amplifying that even more. Yeah, And um, you
4: notice how, how many commonalities there is like turmeric for instance that you're talking about we call it curcuma but we use it all around and again we had a lot of Indian people come in and be like oh I know that or a lot of people from Korea were like oh this looks similar to something I uh-huh. ate and you had the, the weirdest uh, common points that you actually find in food so, so that was a really nice experience and even though people are sometimes afraid one really good thing about New Yorkers is they're willing to give it a try. Mm-hmm. And that's really cool. And that for us was uh, the the thing we were the most afraid of when we started. And we had an amazing welcome from people where they were like, you know what, let's try. And and that. And then that I'm, was great. I'm sure as
3: they taste your food, slowly you can start introducing the things that mm-hmm. didn't do so well because they'd be more willing to say, okay, I know I can do this. My stomach can handle it. Let me now try this other thing
2: that... Um, that I haven't had yeah, that looked beginning. a little weird or funny <laughs> or smelled funky. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. I mean, to that point, can Semsum exist in a city other than New York or maybe somewhere in California? And, and then the same question for you, Deep Deeptee, with food to eat, like where people maybe aren't as exposed to foods from various cultures. Yeah. I
3: mean, for us, um, it's to take what's in the local community and bring that to light. Um, New York is very special, and I grew up in Queens, which is one of the most diverse mm. places in the world. Um, we're special because we have so much of that diversity. Um, what we want to do is slowly take that local feel and bring it to these offices because they don't get a chance to pay attention to what's around them. And then hopefully slowly you know, start saying, okay, now that you know what's around you, let me start bringing in some other cuisines. Like We've started introducing um, North African food um and west african food so people always know ethiopian food and that's all they know so we've started talking to some nigerian vendors and we're trying to even take new yorkers a step ahead so Uh i think we can absolutely exist everywhere else it's just one step at a time Um, and hopefully we grow in new york enough that we're capable of taking our company elsewhere Mm
2: -hmm.
4: and for us as well like we are actually in the process of uh, franchising and uh there is a lot of interest a bit everywhere around the world and i think the the latest uh, political uh uh, issues that happen around immigration were actually worked in our favor because people became more and more aware of the footprint mm-hmm. of those immigrants in the USA. And, and for us, it was actually very beneficial. Mm. And I f- do feel that this happened not only in New York. This We are talking to vendors in California. We are looking at, at other things in Charlotte and Chicago. And uh, and there is an interest to try try a bit more.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I think there is that, like, food as resistance movement that's been happening that sometimes when people feel a little powerless um, with what's happening with policy, they feel like, well, something very tangible I can do is go support, like, an immigrant-owned business by eating their food. I mean, sometimes that's just, like literally the only thing you can do immediately
3: well that's exactly how i sell to really large corporates mm-hmm. um a lot of times we notice that they have quotas so we mm-hmm. um are a female-owned business um, as it is my company and and a lot of times they need to support a certain amount in their quota of you know female-owned businesses so we say to them by working with Futi, you are able to support x number of Women-owned businesses, immigrant-owned businesses, and minority-owned businesses, and for them, it's just a win. It's a great story. Um, why not say that we, you know, help support hundreds of local businesses within our community? And it's it's not only a great story, but you're actually doing it actively by helping their bottom line. Because at the end of the day, that's what these businesses need: more business, um, so that they can grow and expand and start trying to, you know, open that second store or. Um, you know, like one great story is that we worked with a, a vendor of ours that had two storefronts, closed one of them down, um, and ended up opening up a commissary kitchen because she could only, um, service 50 people from that, uh, those two locations each. And now she's able to do 500 plus, um, you hmm. know, uh, catering orders. And so we were capable of giving her enough business and keep, you know, kind of pushing her and her story and empowering, um, them to keep thinking that they don't have to be just a small, um, fast, casual restaurant, that they can actually expand a certain other part of their business um, so that they can do a lot more um, and keep talking about themselves and talking about their stories.
4: And catering for us is even more fun because at least for our food, our food is really made for sharing. So, you know, Lebanese food is a lot about mesa and, you know, small tapa style uh, plates that you share, etc. So catering is a lot of fun for us to prepare because this is where you can really have a lot of flavors and try a lot of things and actually mix and match. And, And this is where the community aspect of it is really fun.
2: Um, This is wonderful to hear. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our commercial sponsor, and then we'll be back to talk more with Deep Tea and Kareen.
4: Thank you.
1: Cooking issues on the Heritage Radio Network. We all know and love Chinese takeout dishes like General So's chicken and egg rolls, but here's the thing even though we call it Chinese food, it's not like the food you'd find in China. What's the story behind this cuisine, and how did it become so popular that you can find a Chinese-American restaurant in nearly every town in the country? The answers may surprise you. Visit the Museum of Food and Drink in Brooklyn and see our newest exhibition, Chow, Making the Chinese-American Restaurant. Chow engages visitors with compelling accounts of how Chinese immigrants overcame racism and created Chinese-American cuisine. Discover the science behind the flavors of your favorite takeout dishes, feast on rotating tastings developed by the country's most talented Chinese American chefs, and try your hand at writing your own fortune, which will be baked into actual cookies by a 1,500 pound fortune cookie machine. What better way to learn, connect, and eat? You can visit Chow at the Museum of Food and Drink on Fridays through Sundays from noon to six. Tickets and more information can be found at MOFAD.org. Hi, I'm Sam Ben Ruby, host of the Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. Tune in every Wednesday at 6 p.m. to hear some of the best people of wine tell you about what's going on in the world of wine. Support my show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the beating heart to donate.
2: Hey, this is food without borders i'm in the studio with kareen aswad and deep tea from food to eat um, and we've been talking about their 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 women owned businesses because they are women and they own them um kareen was what was it like living in the middle east and being a, a female entrepreneur
4: that's a question that i have all the time uh, yep. it was actually uh counterintuitively really cool because people were not expecting you to be a female entrepreneur, so you kind of stand out a bit more. Now it's no longer the case, but at least when Christine, my sister, started, they would, she would go to a meeting and people would look for the man, the mm. father, the brother, the husband that actually owns the business. So they were like, "Oh, so that's your father's company? No, your brother? Still not your husband?" Mm-mm. So it took <laughs> some time to actually. Uh, um, you know, become a recognized or a legitimate business owner. Now she was voted best businesswoman in the Arab world. She's in the top hundred most influential Arab women. So she really made a footprint or a mark that that's uh, that's an important one. For me, um, it was um, it was weird because we didn't always have a role model to look up to. So you didn't really know how to dress, how to talk, how to how to behave. My mom owned her own business, but it was kind of more of the anomaly than the norm. Um, Today uh, we try to uh, give back So we do a lot of uh, education Uh, We support a lot of education for women um, In the Middle East uh, and and around the world And uh, we, we don't see a difference anymore Now it's no longer being a woman CEO in the Middle East It's being a CEO in the Middle East uh, and uh, I think the biggest change is the mentality when it comes to your partner. And Christine, my sister, said sentence in a sentence in a commencement speech that I love. Um, we, we grow up with the idea of needing a partner, a husband, and sometimes this, uh, this uh, uh, hinders a bit your ambitions. And she always says... If your partner uh, does not support your dream, change your partner, and not your dream. Yeah. And this is for me the most important uh, mindset change that we need to affect in the Middle East. It's you as a woman are powerful enough and are is uh, you're capable enough, and your dreams are worthy enough for them to be to be fought for. So, uh, I think women everywhere. We're yeah. we're dealing with uh, that issue here mm-hmm. as well,
3: right? I mean, there is still within that within the tech industry, women aren't looked at seriously. I um, I've gotten asked, "When are you going to have a baby?" Uh, which is ridiculous. First of all, it's not legal. Second of all, it's none of <laughs> your concern. Third of all, it doesn't stop me from doing my day to day job. Like, it um, it only makes me stronger. It, you know, and and as a as a new mother, it's it's almost helped me become a better entrepreneur um, because I know how to prioritize myself. So everything you just said applies to women everywhere, mm-hmm. and sadly, we're all still dealing with issues and hopefully things will change. But it comes from, you know, us taking part and in, in being the role models for women everywhere so that, you know, they can be what they can see.
4: Yes, I, I totally agree. And I think uh, being a consultant, actually, I also, uh, this resonates a lot with me. I feel that the generation before us learned to succeed as men, So they mm-hmm. kind of dressed as men and behaved as men and had the, the you know, the, the mimics, the, the attitude of men. We need to learn to succeed as women. So in our own way, uh, with our own strengths and weaknesses. And this is something that we're learning. So and, and for me, it's a really enjoyable journey. And I feel that there's a lot of very powerful, very aspirational women around me. And we feed off each other. And, and uh, yeah, I do feel that things are changing for the best.
2: That's good. That's nice to hear. And then, uh, you know, I'm also really happy to hear that you um, said that, you know, what's been going on with immigration policy has had a really positive impact on your business. Deep G has that been pretty consistent with most of the businesses you work at yeah. or not so much?
3: Yeah. I mean, um, we haven't heard anything, you know, negative, I think, if anything, for us as a business because we concentrate on uh, on immigrants as a part of our, our storytelling process. Um, that's only helped um, get our companies to start thinking more consciously about who they're giving their orders to. Um, and they are asking like, oh, can you tell us a little bit more? The companies that didn't care about it as much in the past and they were just, you know, making sure that we get their food there on time and as efficiently as possible, everything, getting everything done. They're more interested in those stories. They're more interested in our story and my story and wanting to understand the why of our business and it's not just what we do. Um, and so that's been great for us. Um, I will say something Trump did in the last week, which hasn't been great for the tech startup industry in general, is that he is taking back um, the visa process for startups, uh, startup entrepreneurs, for entrepreneurs that are starting uh, companies in the U S. So that I'm sure will start to affect the industry because, you know, we, you know, I've had developers that I've hired on visas because they were just that great, you know, and they understood what I was doing and they were passionate about what I was doing. Um, And so that will be, really a shitty process that we're going to have to go through as a tech industry, but um, hopefully we can fight through it. Um, A lot of tech leaders had voted that in during the Obama administration. So um, hopefully we can get past
2: the shitty things that he's doing. It's interesting, like the day-to-day things that are yeah. not really, re- I mean, I didn't know that, like how many things are just sort of slipping through the cracks and not yeah. getting reported on because there's so much. There's news. so
3: much. And you know, one thing he's really good at is sound bites, right? Mm-hmm. He knows what people are going to pay attention to. And a lot of times that I, uh, the things I think, he
2: doesn't tweet about.
3: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, he, that's, that's exactly what's happening. It's what him and Ivanka and Jared Kushner don't, you know, like they're not presenting to the table. Those are the things that we don't hear about. So if you're not following, which is why it's so essential and so important for people to be more active, and you see that happening. You know, I have more friends that are saying, "I want to be active. What can I do?" Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, by helping local businesses, by helping immigrant-run businesses, these are small things that you can do. But educating yourself about what's actually happening, and then proactively talking to your local congressman or councilman or you know um, assemblyman, and just understanding how you can talk to them because they're going to understand based off of what their constituents are saying that this is what's most important for them, and this is what I should be concentrating my time on. If they realize, if they see that no one's calling in and no one wants us to talk about these issues, then they're going to continue on whatever's most important to them. Um, so I think it's most important for us to educate ourselves and keep reaching out to local, um, local you know, politicians and making sure that our voices are being heard.
2: Yeah, uh, that's great advice, and it's unfortunately um, a great place to, to stop because we are out of time, although I'd love to keep talking all day. Um, <laughs> can you both tell us where to find you in in person and on the Internet with your respective businesses?
3: Yeah. Um- Twitter, Instagram handles are food to eat. Mine, uh, deep Sharma. If you search me, you'll find me somehow somewhere, but I don't mean like where you (laughs) live,
2: but like, yeah. How to, how to follow your business.
3: Yeah. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We're always, um, we are actually doing a rebranding right now so that we can, um, talk more about our our vendors and uh, share their stories. So hopefully if you follow us on Instagram, you'll hear more about the interesting
4: people we get to work with. Uh, we're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter with the handle Samsung Eatery. So that's S E M S O M Eatery, uh, and uh, we're also we have three stores at the moment. One is Astor and Broadway, so two Astor Place. The second is in Columbus Circle, and the third one is Forty First and Lex.
2: Great, thank you both so much for joining me today. It was really a pleasure of to thank talk you. to you and hear about your amazing enterprises. Check us out here next week, same time, Wednesday, 5 p.m. EST on heritageradionetwork.org. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.